Thank you for listening to Enable this week. I know it's the middle of winter, and I know you probably don't really want to go outdoors, but soon the weather will get better, and you'll be eager to get outside and enjoy what nature has to offer. Today you'll find out about outdoor accessibility on trails in New Hampshire, on a beach in Florida, and in our national parks. I'll start with an article from the Sierra Club, and I will give thanks now to my Reach Out Radio colleague, Kathy Van Skyke, for sending me this article. It's from the sierraclub.org website. The headline reads, Accessibility for the Blind, a Burgeoning Movement, Braille Trails, Sensory Gardens, and More. The article was written by Stacy McKenna. It was published in November of 2020. Whether he's hiking in his beloved White Mountains or ascending a distant peak, Randy Pierce plays attention with all of his senses. He listens to the wind as it whistles through a ravine or rustles in a stand of American beech trees. He lets the fragrance of a forest, as it becomes dominated by pine, tell him when he's reached an elevation milestone. With one hand on a trekking pole and the other on his guide dog's harness or a friend's backpack, Randy Pierce feels the ground and focuses on the shifts in his partner's movements to anticipate roots or rocks in his path. Even the air on his face provides clues about his environment, he says. Here's a quote. People who have been blind all their life are better at it than me, but I can walk along and I can feel when I am close to a massive tree because the air pressure changes. Or I can feel when I'm close to a glacial erratic because of the temperature change. At the summit, Randy Pierce visualizes the sweeping views his companions describe, relishing in the fact that he gets to see such vistas through multiple sets of eyes. And on cloudy days, he often can tell those same friends what would be in their sight line if the skies were clear. That's because he prepares for his hikes by tracing raised relief maps with his thumb while listening to descriptions of the landscapes. Although an estimated 32.2 million adults in the United States identify as blind or unable to see or experience difficulty seeing even with corrective lenses, many nature-based experiences remain difficult to access for blind and partially sighted individuals. Some of these barriers are physical. Nature-based experiences often require venturing into geographically isolated places, which of course becomes especially difficult for individuals who depend on public transportation. And once there, people who are blind or partially sighted may grapple with additional challenges, says Christopher Dixon, Youth Program Manager at the Center for Visually Impaired in Daytona Beach, Florida. Seemingly simple endeavors like navigating new terrain or finding a trailhead can be tricky in the absence of accessible information. Here's a quote from Christopher Dixon. If you haven't had proper mobility training at that location, where do you go? How do you get around? What's there? What, where are things? Dixon says it's hard to get there. And once you get there, it's hard to get around if you haven't been there before. 
Some of this is challenging. Across the country, networks of what are called Braille trails include educational placards in Braille, guidelines to delineate the path, and tactile walkways or smartphone-accessible audio tours. Things that are called sensory gardens explicitly take the experience beyond the visual, incorporating plants that make strange sounds, have unique scents, or are appealing to touch, or can be tasted. In recent years, the National Park Service has added audio guides and brochures at dozens of its parks and is slowly working toward improving transit options in some areas. You will hear much more about this topic later. The article continues, Still, even with some concrete obstacles out of the way, personal and interpersonal obstacles continue to keep many blind and partially sighted people from embracing the outdoors. Megan O'Connell Kopp is an adaptive physical education teacher at the Perkins School for the Blind in Watertown, Massachusetts. As she introduces her students to sports and outdoor activities, she finds many of them have internalized others' perceptions of their limitations. That's what she said. After Randy Pierce, the man from New Hampshire, lost his vision at the age of 22, the result of a neurological disease, he quit hiking and climbing for nearly 20 years. It wasn't until his condition worsened, temporarily landing him in a wheelchair, that he started to think about the outdoors again. As he worked with a physical therapist to regain his ability to walk, she sought out creative ways to challenge him and inspire him. One day, she encouraged him to try using a hiking stick in place of his more stable quad cane. Well, in 2009, four years after he began the process of getting his feet back under him, Randy Pierce was hiking again, in earnest. By August of 2013, he had summited all 48 of New Hampshire's 4,000-foot peaks in both winter and summer, and he had his sights set on adventures from the Grand Canyon to Kilimanjaro. For youths who, unlike Randy Pierce, may not have fond memories of the wilderness adventures to motivate them, innovative programs are still opening doors. In 2016, Perkins unveiled an accessible park adjacent to the school along the banks of the Charles River. The paved path marked by a guide wire and dotted with braille markers at points of interest, such as the sensory garden or canoe-shaped benches, this paved path gives students the chance to explore independently and using multiple senses. In Central Florida, the Young Sound Seekers program, started earlier this year, introduced a group of blind and partially sighted students, most of whom had never been to a national park. The Young Sound Seekers program introduced them to the soundscapes of Canaveral National Seashore. The NPS-funded program is a collaboration between the Atlantic Center for the Arts, Daytona Beach's Center for the Visually Impaired, and Stetson University in that area. It aims to give the youth a real-life opportunity to hone practical skills, such as navigating unfamiliar ground, and introduces them to nature in their own backyard. You'll hear more about this program very shortly, too. This article continues, though, by saying, at its core, the Young Sound Seekers teaches students to interrogate their environments using sound. At the program's 
second in-person meeting on a Saturday, the group gathered in the shade of a live oak canopy at Seminole Rest, listening to bird calls, listening to squirrels scrambling among the branches, a breeze whispering through the moss, even a jet rumbling overhead. Guided by Stetson University Professor of Digital Arts and Music Technology, Nathan Wolek, participants described what they heard and discussed the role that sounds play in the ecosystem. In a modified version of the National Park Service's time machine exercise, they imagined what it might have sounded like when the indigenous Timquan people were shucking oysters and tossing the shells into the area's nascent middens 3,000 years ago. And in case you're not familiar with that word middens, the area's nascent middens, this is an ancient garbage dump. That's a good way of describing it. That's what the Timucuan people were doing, shucking oysters and tossing the shells into the area's middens 3,000 years ago. They were imagining that. Using senses other than vision is fundamental to the way blind and partially sighted people experience the world, Dixon explains. We use our hands, here's a quote, we use our hands and our fingers to look and see and feel, he says, adding, listening is just another tool for understanding what's beyond our fingertips. Thus, expanding nature-based resources in ways that showcase an array of sensory experiences is an essential part of making those spaces more welcoming to individuals who are blind or partially sighted. It's also an important way in our visually oriented culture to expand how typically sighted visitors perceive the outdoors. Now we'll switch to another article. As mentioned before, this information came from the Daytona Beach News Journal. Their website is news-journalonline.com. The article was written by Abigail Mercer and it was published in October of last year. The headline reads, Learning to Listen. Blind, low-sided students benefit from the Atlantic Center program. We're going to Florida now. Here we go. Hang on. Bird calls, crashing waves. Many find relaxation in the sounds of nature. For children and young adults with visual impairments, those sounds can also be a valuable way to get information about the world around them. As part of a five-year, $300,000 grant from the National Park Services program called Natural Sounds and Night Skies, the Atlantic Center for the Arts is partnering with Stetson University and the Center for the Visually Impaired to create what they're calling the Young Sound Seekers Program. The 10-month program includes excursions to Canaveral National Seashore, dedicated to learning about sound ecology and expanding the students' view of the world around them. Dr. Nathan Wolock, Professor of Digital Arts and Music Technology at Stetson, works on the curriculum for the project. He is focusing on teaching active listening, as well as helping the students expand their vocabulary about the world around them. Here's a quote. There's a difference between hearing and listening. Hearing is a more passive activity, and listening is much more active. You're taking those sounds in. You're assessing them, Wolek said. It was really neat to have a group of people, 11 in all, and be the only people on the beach for about a mile. 
We really listened to the sound of the waves crashing against the shore, the smattering of birds flying down, the sound of the grass on the dunes fluttering in the wind, just layering that groundwork for future excursions. Those future excursions will happen once a month until May, and each day out at the Canaveral National Shore will work students toward their end goal, creating an audio-focused podcast to listen to on the park's mobile app. Instead of pointing out visuals such as the types of birds or trees, Dr. Wolick said the podcast will be geared toward blind and low-sighted people. Already, Wolick said, he's been impressed with the students' skills. While he often has to explain to his university students the difference between sound and noise, a word that has a connotation of unwanted sound, these young sound seekers did not have that problem. He said, I've been teaching at Stetson for 16 years now, so I've had plenty of experience. It's a common topic in some lectures to talk about the difference between sound and noise. But this group didn't even talk about that, he said. For the first time in my 16 years, I had a group of students that did not conflate the words sound and noise in our initial conversations. Eve Payor, Director of Community Programs for the Atlantic Center for the Arts, called this project a labor of love. Between teaching the students about environmental conservation and helping them expand their vocabulary of the world around them, it's something Payor thinks can make a real difference for the students. Here's a quote from her. I find it's important for us to explore the subtleties of life, she said. One of our goals is to provide these students a safe environment where they can enjoy listening to these sounds just to enjoy them and have a moment instead of doing so because they need to. And while students listen to their surroundings for enjoyment, Payer said they can take the opportunity to teach them about the environment and the problem of sound pollution. Trying to communicate, whether it be for mating or looking for food, has become increasingly hard for animals, Payer said. She compared it to trying to shout across an increasingly busy highway. Here's a quote. It's so important to understand our place in the ecosystem. We can learn stories and map sounds just by listening, she said. The stressors of different sounds are well documented. People can get illness from too much noise, and that translates to wildlife, too. It gets hard for animals to communicate with the noise pollution. It can stress them out. Rone David, CEO for the Center for the Visually Impaired, this is in the Daytona Beach area, Rone David said the program, which is focused on students aged 14 to 22, is going to be a large step toward getting them ready for college or careers. Here's a quote from her. This is helping them to provide skills that they need to become self-sufficient, David said. The students are really enjoying it. It's so wonderful for them to get outside and learn and be in the parks and experience this. Payor said the pilot project for this five-year grant will be a benefit to both the students taking part in the program and the community around them. The article ends with a quote from her. The real important thing for us to give the blind and partially sighted community is to make them feel welcome and to allow them to contribute to the community by telling their stories. It's really about giving them 
independence. Now you should know, even though we're in the middle of winter, that this article is accompanied by a picture showing the students gathered on a weathered wooden boardwalk. It leads from a grass-covered sand dune to what seems to be an endless stretch of empty white sand beach. The ocean is a vibrant turquoise blue. White foamy waves are gently coming up onto the beach. There's another picture with this article that shows the students gathered under a spacious pavilion with an arched roof. Two students are sitting at each picnic table facing the instructor. Behind the instructor there is a view of the ocean. And for those of us in more northern climates, please note that there's no snow in these pictures and the sun is out. This is from Daytona Beach, Florida. And once again, this program was called the Young Sound Seekers, sponsored by the National Park Service in collaboration with the Atlantic Center for the Arts, Daytona Beach's Center for the Visually Impaired, and Stetson University, all in the Daytona area. Earlier in the program, I mentioned that in recent years, the National Park Service has added audio guides and brochures at dozens of its parks and is slowly working toward improving accessibility options in some areas. Well, I've picked out a few areas to, uh, to take you to and have a look, see what's going on. So here's an example of what the National Park Service is doing. Information comes from their website, nps.gov. We're using Cape Cod as our first example. The headline or the section reads, Blind, Low Vision Accessibility, Learn and Explore. They have a lead-in paragraph that says, Much of Cape Cod National Seashore is accessible to those who are blind or have low vision. In addition to the accommodations listed below, vision-impaired and audio-only versions are now available of the main park brochure. Cape Cod National Seashore and many other National Park Service sites now have full audio described versions of their main park brochure. The brochure is available in text only, audio only, and an interactive text and audio app for both Android and iOS Apple devices. Some of the points that they make here, there are nine of them. They have large print versions of official park publications. These are available at the Salt Pond area. This is in Cape Cod Park or at the province lands visitor centers and at the park headquarters. They also mention there's the Button Bush Trail near the Salt Pond Visitor Center. This trail has guide ropes and braille signage. Next, we have the, they claim that there is a Braille translation of the park, park brochure. It's available for use at the two visitor centers and at park headquarters. The next point they make, the four park movies shown at the two visitor centers have been audio described and assistive listening devices are available. The next thing they want you to know, the lobby exhibits at the Salt Pond area and Province Lands area have tactile features. And at the Wampanoag exhibit in the Salt Ponds Museum, there are phone sets for audio messages. The next point, crosswalks at the Salt Pond have tactile markings. The next point, exhibits follow visual accessibility guidelines for color, contrast, font, and point size. 
And the next point they make, Province Lands Visitor Center has a tactile floor plan available. And the actual exhibits gallery is described for people who have low or no vision. And the final point they made here is that web content is accessible to screen readers and social media posts include hashtag alt text. Another possible destination if you're doing this National Park tour is the Statue of Liberty National Monument in New York Harbor. Information Center is located a short walk from the boat dock. Liberty Island Information Center offers visitors a narrated movie about the statue's history. The volume of the film is adjustable by the ranger. The park brochure audio described text for the Statue of Liberty National Monument is available as a Word document. There is a braille ready park brochure available to use and there are two tactile displays within the Information Center. We come to Ranger programs at the Statue of Liberty. All Ranger programs strive to engage multiple senses and learning styles and often include audio components and or tactile objects. Ranger-led tours are offered year-round and are outside on the grounds of Liberty Island, which has brick walkways. There is little elevation change. Some walkways slope slightly. Most walkways are a minimum of 10 feet in width. The Statue of Liberty Museum is there, too. Located past the Information Center, on the left, the Statue of Liberty Museum is accessible by two ramps. Located on either side of the building, or one flight of stairs, the museum includes a narrated 10-minute movie, three interactive galleries, and restrooms, all located on one level. Throughout the museum, visitors can use the self-guided audio tour, which is available with headsets and volume control. A descriptive audio tour is also available for visitors who are blind or have low vision. There are several tactile displays within the museum for visitors to touch. And this is at the Statue of Liberty Museum at, near the Information Center on Liberty Island. There are also, they mention audio tours. An audio tour program is available in a variety of languages. It includes historical accounts on the construction and design of the Statue of Liberty. The audio tour program can be used as a guided tour around the perimeter of the monument and as a narrative to artifacts located within the museum. Audio descriptive tours created specifically for people who are blind or visually impaired are available free of charge from the pavilion located near Liberty Island Information Center. And then we go inside the monument. Visitors with pedestal reservations will have access to various levels of the pedestal. Visitors with crown reservations will have access to the various levels of the pedestal and in the crown of the statue. While visiting the Statue of Liberty, emergency warnings and fire alarms are equipped with strobe or flashing lights. For a detailed description of how to navigate within the monument, you really need to go to their physical mobility uh, pet within the pedestal page for more details. Now, I also found on the um, National Park Service website information about service animals, and this applies to all of their parks. 
but in this case, some of the information is specific to the Statue of Liberty Park. The section is called Service Animals, How Service Animal is Defined. Service animals are defined as dogs that are individually trained to do work or perform tasks for people with disabilities. They are working animals, not pets. Examples of such work or tasks include guiding people who are blind, alerting people who are deaf, pulling a wheelchair, alerting and protecting a person who is having a seizure, reminding a person with mental illness to take prescribed medications, calming a person with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD during an anxiety attack, or performing other duties. The work or task an animal has been trained to provide must be directly related to the person's disability. Dogs whose sole function is to provide comfort or emotional support do not qualify as service animals under the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. This definition does not affect or limit the broader definitions of assistance animal under the Fair Housing Act or the broader definition of service animal under the Air Carrier Access Act. Some state and local laws also define service animals more broadly than the ADA does. The next section is called Where Service Animals Are Allowed. And remember, this is pertaining to the Statue of Liberty, but there are certain things like this for every national park. Where service animals are allowed. Service animals are welcome in all areas of the park except for access to the crown. This is at the Statue of Liberty once again. Assessments have determined that allowing service animals on the crown stairway poses a legitimate threat to the safety of the disabled handler, to other visitors in the crown, and to the service animal itself. Visitors who wish to make arrangements to leave their service animal in a portable kennel during their visit to the crown should contact the Statue of Liberty Park officials at least two weeks prior to their visit. Now the next point, I'm sure applies to all national parks, service animals must be under control. Guests who use service animals must retain control of their animals at all times and should keep them on a leash or harness while visiting, unless the animal is required to do otherwise in order to mitigate a person's disability. The next section, inquiries, exclusions, charges, and other specific rules related to service animals. Allergies and fear of dogs are not valid reasons for denying access or refusing service to people using service animals. When a person who is allergic to dog dander and a person who uses a service animal must spend time in the same room or facility, they both should be accommodated by assigning them, if possible, to different locations within the room or different rooms in the facility. A person with a disability cannot be asked to remove his or her service animal from the premises unless, number one, the animal is out of control and the handler does not take effective action to control it, or the dog is not housebroken. Staff are not required to provide care or food for service animals. And please note they remind you that other national parks, other than the two that we mentioned today, are adding accessible services at all locations. Also, a little warning, don't forget that the pandemic restrictions may be in effect depending on where and when you plan to visit some of our national parks. 
So to summarize today's program, uh, pretty soon it will be time to get outside and enjoy spending time in nature once again. Plan ahead and look for some braille trails or sensory gardens. Listen for the quiet on an isolated beach or even visit one of our national parks. To end the program today, I have a quote for you to think about. Of all the paths you can take in life, be sure a few of them are dirt. This was said by John Muir, also known as John of the Mountains. He's also known as Father of our National Parks. He was an influential Scottish-American naturalist, author, environmental philosopher, botanist, zoologist, glaciologist, and early advocate for the preservation of wilderness in the United States of America. He was born in the UK in 1838, died in Los Angeles in 1914, John Muir. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great week.